Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle, which is coming right up. And today it's a very special program. We're taking a look at a rare but deadly cancer, and we have assembled for you four of the most extraordinary experts who are going to tell you about a new system, not of solution, but of a way to a solution, a new trial which is going to uh, envelop the globe so that uh, uh, treatments can be shared, experience can be ch shared. Uh, the cancer is brain cancer. It is a particular version of it. It is called, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, I don't expect you to remember us, there won't be a test at the end, uh, glioblastoma multiform. And our experts begin with Dr. Anna Barker, Professor and Director of Transformative Healthcare Networks at Arizona State University. Welcome to the broadcast, Anna. And uh, Dr. Timothy Clossy, Director of the UCLA Neuro-Oncology and Clinical, and uh, he's a clinical professor. And whereabouts at UCLA are you located? Oh, right on campus there in Westwood. In, in, in Los Angeles? That's correct. Yeah, yes. right. Great. And then we have, uh, I'm very glad to say, uh, Dr. Webb Cavani, who's the director uh, from 1991 to this year of Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research in San Diego and a distinguished professor at the University of California at San Diego. Yes, sir. And last but certainly not least, uh, Dr. Sujan Barr, president and chief operating officer, National Foundation for Cancer Research. Welcome to the broadcast. We're delighted to have all of you here. Uh, you have a new protocol, is it? How do you describe it, uh, what you are doing, what has brought you to Washington uh, to talk about? Anna. So GBM Agile is a... Is an GBM adaptive. is the... G is so glioblastoma multiforme, which you've just described, is the most aggressive form of brain cancer. And it's actually sort of advanced glioma, but glioblastoma multiforme really describes the tumor because when the tumor is actually diagnosed, it, the multiforme means that there are multi-sites in the brain. So it, it picked up that name years ago, and it's stuck, and we use it because people recognize it. But and we say GBM. GBM. So and we're going to say GBM from now on. And your, your new trials are called GBM Agile. So Agile is an acronym. We have a lot of acronyms in our business, but acronym stands for adaptive. Um, global. Uh, what else am I missing here? Let's see. Adaptive, innovative. global, <laughs> innovative, learning, environment. We'll so get this eventually. It's, it, it's, it's not agile as in agile. Well, we, we, it's pretty agile. I think we're going to think it's pretty agile by uh, the time we finish talking here today. But essentially, the trial is an adaptive trial. It's actually driven by Bayesian statistics. So what that means is we've designed a trial that will learn from every patient that data comes back into the database and the next patient actually benefits from that. So we'll be able to use something called biomarkers, which are sort of molecular signals, if you would, or tells us something about the cancer, uh, to stratify the patients so get, they get the best drug for their disease. And then as we learn, uh, every patient, once we learn that a, that a drug is working, for example, patients will get that drug. And uh, as time goes by, we'll actually identify more drugs and we'll actually also identify biomarkers in this trial. So this is a way to actually screen and actually include a lot of patients in a trial. There will be many arms of the trial. We're gonna test different agents. 
and that makes it very different from a, from a normal trial, which are usually single arm trials testing one agent, lots of patients, over time, yes or no kind of answer. Here, we're going to be learning, it's a learning system, a learning environment essentially, and uh, over time, we'll also learn a lot about the science that's really driving this disease. So it's very different and having it global is gonna make a big difference in terms of understanding more about how the disease actually functions in different populations around the world. Tim, how will it work? What, is the, what yeah. are the interconnections? So first, um, there are three different clinical trial populations that are gonna be involved, all of them in glioblastoma patients. Two, we're gonna be calling first line evaluations and one in recurrence. And in each of those settings, there's a control population I'm sorry, a control therapy, and then maybe four or more experimental therapies. A control therapy is one that's been used in the past. It's usually the standard, the, the what best we have available. today. That's correct. The, what is known to be the best That's available. correct. So we have uh, the setup uh, like that. What's different about glioblastoma is we don't have these, what I would call therapeutically actionable biomarkers. In breast cancer and lung cancer and melanoma, they have these, so they know how to associate specific molecular lesions and therapies together. Well, we don't have that in glioblastoma. But what GBM Agile is going to do, it's gonna take and allow for an experimental arm to be linked with one of these molecular abnormalities, a biomarker, so that we can learn about that as the study progresses. Now, what really happens is a patient will come in They'll get consented. Then they go through very extensive molecular testing. At the same time, we evaluate to see whether or not they're eligible for the study. Oh, this could be a patient in China, a patient in Washington, could a patient in, in Australia. Australia. That's exactly Europe. right. Once the patients are eligible, we look at the, the clinical trial population they're in. We look at some prognostic factors, and we look at the molecular markers that exist and then they get randomized in a fixed fashion into these experimental arms. Now, as Anne was saying, as this develops and as it goes on, we begin to understand who is benefiting and who isn't benefiting. So then the randomization starts to become adaptive, where we begin to pick the winner, and more patients go into that population. Now, patients could even have a molecular subtype and be selected into that specific treatment arm. Now, these studies, as we go forward, at these different experimental settings, they will be dropped or they'll graduate. They'll drop from futility and graduate from a benefit. But the way GBM Agile is set up that as they drop, new experimental agents can go into GBM Agile and it becomes a perpetual type of study. So there's benefit not only in identifying the winners and the losers in that setting, but you can imagine there's gonna be a huge amount of data that comes out of that. And that data will be set for kind of exploratory evaluations that we'll be able to move forward with. And those exploratory evaluations will help inform how to improve GBM Agile. And to some degree, you know, not everything is going to happen within GBM Agile. There's going to be things that happen outside of it. But if anything changes, GBM Agile is going to be able to take on new information even outside of GBM Agile and integrate it into GBM Agile. So if we come up with new standards, if we come up with new biomarker treatment interactions, that will occur. 
And maybe the final thing that Anne was alluding to is, you know, this is going to be a global study. And so as therapeutic benefits come out, we'll be able to put them into the context of race, ethnicity, various genetic uh, susceptibilities that might exist. So all of those things kind of will encompass GBM Agile and allow it to move forward in a continuous way. Um, Webb, um, what about non-cancers? Non will they benefit from this approach? Sure. Other health problems? Right, so I, I, think, the, I think the big advantage of, of the Agile uh, design is, that, is the global part. And That's the, why it's going to be so transformative. Yes, I think so. And the reason for that is because the number of patients in the U.S. who have uh, glioblastoma, therefore die of glioblastoma, is about 13,000 a year. In the U.S., about 5% of adults go on a clinical trial. So you're down to 600 or so cases. And those cases um, are distributed amongst 75 medical centers, let's say. So the number of patients available for a clinical trial is on the order of 5 to 10. That's not sufficient because to do a real clinical trial in phase three takes thousands of patients. So we simply couldn't do that here. And this is important because uh, we know a lot about, about the genetics of, of glioblastoma as much as any other tumor, actually, uh, because of Ann Barker, when she was the deputy director at NCI, put together uh, a national system called the Cancer Genome Atlas Project, and GBM was the first tumor that was analyzed there. So we know a lot about the genomics and the genetics of this disease, which is, of course, the basis of personalized medicine. And if for GBM, despite the fact, as you said earlier, that it's heterogeneous, uh, the number of mutations is not so large, maybe a dozen, a two dozen, and they cluster in three or four pathways, which means that the substrate is there for personalized medicine. And in fact, the drugs exist for that kind of personalized medicine, too. There are probably 40 or 50 uh, that exist that we could logically say are ones we should use. However, GBM is a worthy opponent, and it can change. So when we give a GBM patient a drug, it's, it, their GBM changes. It rewires itself. So it becomes insensitive. That's called drug resistance. So that means that we're going to have to use a combination either of drugs, of drugs and immunotherapies, of drugs and immunotherapies and devices, or some combination thereof. So we've got 600 patients in the U.S. We have 40 drugs. In the, the brief span of this disease before right. death, uh, it will, the, the, the tumor will change. Yes. It will become resistant in that six or eight months or whatever yes. the, the time period. In that very short space of time, we think of drug resistance as being years and years, but in fact, it's very quick. Correct. Very quick. And, and that, but what that means is that we, we need to cut off the escape routes, right? And in order to do that, we're talking about another agent. So giving an agent that has a, a lesser a temporary effect, um, you have escape and you try to cut off the escape. But that means now that you have 40 times 40 combinations just of the drugs we know mm -hmm. that have to exist. We can't do one plus one, never mind 40 yeah. times 40. Yeah. So the only way to do that is to employ the international arena because the number of patients then are large enough that we can do, we can do this rapidly. Uh, you know, patients are dying. Yeah. I mean, right. this needs to be done. Very interesting. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, not only can we do it rapidly, but as Tim said, we can stratify on the basis of ethnicity. 
And the only reason that I raise that issue is because targeted agents, the kind that are used in personalized medicine, um, have shown in, in uh, Japanese women non-smokers who had lung cancer a, 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 a toxicity that was not seen in white males or not seen in Japanese males and not seen in Japanese women who smoked. So it's clear that there's t there are differences in how different populations handle drugs. In a typical trial, you would get an adverse event because patient would respond with a toxic, uh, with a toxic um, response. That would be a big problem for the trial. Here, we can actually stratify, which we've never been able to do before. So John, uh, you uh, uh, represent National Federation for Cancer Research, uh, which is a fundraising and uh, uh, award-giving. You, you help research. What is your role in Agile? Well, participating in GBM Agile goes to the heart of NFCR's mission. And that's what we do to help find cures for cancer. And we already found some of the researchers that are involved in GBM Agile. So it's really a very natural expansion to our cancer research program. So you're a, a program. financial facilitator. And that is one very important uh, uh, thing NFCR brings to the table, to the GBM Agile, that we bring the deep experience in facilitating and managing the international uh, collaboration, the sort of international collaboration and talks about and envisions for the GBM Agile. How do you find, uh, to anybody at the table, how do you find other countries that want to participate? So it's interesting, uh, and maybe I should say something about this, because in, in our press release, when people ask me, you know, how did this happen? And it really has been a very bottoms-up kind of activity. Um, Webb and, and our myself and my colleague Al Young in 2013 just decided that these statistics were so dismal and we all have this relationship with GBM, it was just time to rethink this disease because we weren't going anywhere. And so we had a couple of think tanks and there were about 35 of us. And once we sort of decided that one of our major recommendations was to do a trial like this, all of a sudden we grew to 130. <laughs> And so when people ask me, you know, what is GBM Agile, I say it's sort of crowdsourcing knowledge so we can build the best trial we can. So we have, we have probably the major leadership of the whole GBM community is now in this trial. Um, the FDA is involved. What is the Food and Drug Administration, which normally administers trials or right. at least passes on the, the results of trials, not always favorably, um, in, in the case of GBM, almost never favorably because. So they how how succeeded. is it that you've got them on board? Because this is really contrary to their their uh, modus operandi. Well, I've had the the very wonderful experience of working directly with the FDA when I was at the NIH for many years, and I find the FDA to be amongst the most innovative agencies and people that I've ever known, and. So we work with them through the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health with FDA. Many of us on this trial actually work with them to design and actually implement a trial called iSpy2, which essentially is very much like this trial in terms of it being adaptive for breast cancer. So FDA worked directly with us on that trial. We just met with them a few weeks ago, and um, 
we have the same problems. It's interesting. GBM Agile and FDA have similar issues and similar problems. We want to learn, as Webb said, about you know how do these drugs work in patients around the world? How are we going to incorporate standards of care across the globe when we're trying to actually test agents like this? You know, how are we going to do this faster and much uh, with much less expense? So we're all facing the same issues, and so I think. Uh, this is a learning system for all of us, and so it's knowledge, uh, you know, it's really knowledge building and crowdsourcing knowledge, and, and, and I like to think of it as end-to-end -end sort of knowledge creation because we're going to take, you know, knowledge from individual patients, but as Tim said, we're also taking knowledge that's going on out there in the rest of the world, and part of that's going to come from FDA. They have enormous strengths in this area. We're going to take a moment for station identification, primarily for our listener on, listeners on Sirius XM radio, the POTUS Channel 124. You are listening to White House Chronicle with myself, Llewellyn King, coming to you from Washington and with four distinguished scientists. They are Dr. Anna Barker, Professor, uh, Professor and Director of Transformative Healthcare Networks, Arizona State University. Dr. Wade Cavani, Director uh, to this year, uh, since 1991, at the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research in San Diego. Dr. Timothy Clossy, Director of the UCLA Neuro-Oncology and Clinical Professor in Los Angeles, and Dr. Sujan Barr, President and Chief Operating Officer of the National Foundation for Cancer Research. This program can be seen on 200 television stations in the U.S. and around the world on the English language, radio, and television stations of The Voice of America. Um, why did it, in a way, why did it take so long to look at other countries, to bring the mutual experience together? You know, I think that uh, countries of, oh, everybody has been interested in, in working together, but there really wasn't a platform to do that in. Uh, each country has their own kind of cooperative groups, uh, and occasionally the cooperative groups would work together, but it would be relatively uncommon. And there just really didn't exist a common platform and studies usually would start and stop. So you'd get a group together, it would take a lot of effort, you'd, you'd start the study, you'd complete it, and then you would be done. And to do it again, you have to start all over again. The platform approach here, you know, prevents that. Uh, we we say platform, this may not be easily understandable yeah. to, to, yeah. to viewers. Uh, what, what do you mean by a platform? The platform is the trial. So the trial and the trial design, and, and I think you can't, you can't overestimate how valuable this is because a single arm trial like Anne was talking about needs to be written, that takes a year or two, needs to be approved another year or two, needs to have patients enrolled another year or two, especially with small numbers, needs to be done another year or two, and then you have an answer to one question, and that's it, and the trial ends. And then you say, okay, well, I have another question. You start at zero. But with this trial, you don't do that because you, you, you write it once, you get it approved once, and then it adds arms in, takes arms out, and so it's a continuing, uh, a continuing process. I think that's really the, transform, the transformative part of this. One thing I should have said when we talked about the FDA is we're doing this trial under something called a master protocol. It's, um, it's a very, very interesting way to move drugs through a trial because if you were doing a normal single-arm trial like we just talked about, 
you'd have to go in, you'd have to, if you want to change the protocol, you have to go back to FDA, you have to do a lot of change to your protocol, et cetera. This way, under a master protocol, all you have to do is bring your drug in through an appendix. It's very rapidly approved. And essentially, the master protocol allows you to set up this platform. This means if you got a drug, say an off-label drug, that, that is a drug you want to try, but it is not approved for this treatment. Right. Um, how long does that approval take? It will take. Uh, it will take a few. It could take a few days. It could take uh, a couple of weeks. It won't take very long under uh, this master protocol approach. And is there a a, a ground zero, a, a, a secretariat, a, somebody running this from? from an office somewhere, or many it's, people, it's, or is it all you're virtual? Looking all. You're looking at all of us, but it, yes, we'll have an we're, we're going to have an operation center. These trials all have operation centers. This is a very virtual activity. I mean, it's very distributed around the world, and, uh, but there will be, uh, to your point, a ground zero. There will be an operating, uh, there'll be an operating center. Uh, the beauty also of the master protocol, which what creates the platform, is we centralize a lot of these functions, and so it it helps us even in countries like China, where you know we'll have we have distri we have distribution of the way the tests are done, the way the patients are managed, etc. But the sort of the standards and the approaches we use will be the same. We've already uh, again I throw this to the table. Whoever wants to answer it, we've already established that this is a heterogeneous uh, uh, problem, which means that many ethnicities suffer from this brain cancer. Uh, so why is it important uh, in this trial to have uh, people from around the world and to have various ethnicities in the US and elsewhere? Yeah. Well, I think you know, Webb touched on the first part, which is to make sure we have adequate numbers to run through the program. And then we want to make sure that um, what normally maybe would happen is, let's imagine a drug would get approved, we'd see something happen, and it would get approved in the U.S. based upon patients treated in the U.S. And then it would just be adopted in other countries without really evaluating those groups to determine whether there are toxicities, whether the same benefits actually exist. And many times these are expensive therapies. So we want to understand all of those. We want to understand value. How do you, you've got a very short time period here. Mortality is always staring you in the right. face. Um, if you find that a drug available in Canada is effective, that's not going to help somebody in New Zealand if it's not available in New Zealand, is it? Well, I think what happens, though, is the population that's studied, let's say, is predominantly an American population, maybe initially. And that's trying to be applied to a group of, of patients in, in Thailand, in China. And it may not actually be appropriate. It may not provide the same value, and there may be additional toxicities. I would want to ask uh, Sujan, uh, what are the critical elements needed to connect GBM, Agile, with the public? How, well, does, how does this connect with the public? The people out there viewing this or listening to it on radio, uh, how do you connect with them? First of all, people need to know the GBM Agile is happening. So the shows like this are very important, Llewellyn. And second, people needed to know that the best doctors and best researchers in the world are involved in GBM Agile. So I believe this program offers great hope for patients, for GBM patients around the world. And uh, I hope 
patients will have a high confidence in this program and uh, get enrolled actively. That's very important. And, and, and lastly, and people need to understand that programs like this require huge financial support. Uh, and uh, I believe the public financial support to uh, GBM Agile is critical to the success of the trial. That brings up the other question, who's paying for this? Are you this, asking me? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, she she, she so. knows more about money, but uh, uh, where does the Everything so, is expensive in medicine. Yes. Everything is expensive when it goes global. Right. So we're going to actually raise the funds for this trial ourselves. Um, and that may, you may look at me and say, oh, well, you're being delusional. Uh, but we, in fact, uh, believe that great ideas uh, find great supporters for the iSpy 2 trial. I like that thought. I like that. I, 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 I tend to agree with it, I too. think it's true. Yeah. I think it's true. And uh, we've always had, I should say, we've had good success with this kind of approach in the past. For the iSpy 2 trial, for example, we raised all those funds from philanthropy, and we did it very quickly because we found people who really loved big ideas. And are you looking? Are you looking to private support, or are you looking to the government? No, we're we're looking for private philanthropic, enlightened philanthropists who understand that this is the way to change the world, and to change it on a global basis. And so, we have not yet started to raise money for the trial currently. Uh, we're supporting the planning for the trial through Arizona State University, the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation, National Foundation for Cancer Research, um, and uh, we'll start raising money probably uh, about the time we finish this show. <laughs> okay, well, that, that sounds wonderful. I happen to know that, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing that why people go into a subject, and I know a little bit about people at this table, but I want to ask you, Webb, how did you become an oncologist or interest in oncology, which is the science of cancer. Well, my brother has a brain tumor. Oh, and this so it's familial. And, and some other members of my family had other cancers. So I was, I was trained as a molecular biologist. So to me, the understanding how cancer rewires normal development circuits really was of interest. And this disease is one of the most interesting because of some of the features that Anne uh, described. And how, that did, was really how did you come to the study? Not, not terribly different from Webb. I trained in, in immunology, and um, I had a family member that I watched die from pancreatic cancer when I was 12 years old, and then I've lost my mother and my sister to breast cancer and uh, several other members of my family to pancreatic cancer. So uh, the personal experience of cancer tends to make you a lot more passionate the science is incredible. We're all very interested in the science. But when, when it comes to you personally, it makes you a lot more passionate about doing more for patients. And for GBM patients, I, I work a lot in, in when I was at the NCI. We, we, we spend a lot of money on a lot of cancers. And uh, GBM, as deadly and as aggressive and terrible as it is, needs more attention and more funding. Tim. Yeah, so I you know, was trained as a neurologist, and I kind of got into neuro-oncology, but without fully understanding what it meant. You know, we take care of about 300 newly diagnosed brain cancer patients each year, follow 800, and we see about 250 of our patients die each year, just at UCLA. 
And when you see the impact that it has, you know why you're doing this. Sujan, you have the last word. How did you come to this study? You know, when I joined the <coughs> National Foundation for Cancer Research 17 years ago, I started as a chief science officer, and I was always uh, looking for the most innovative projects that uh, NFCR can fund. And uh, now, uh, serving as the president of NFCR, I believe this and program is the most innovative one. Time has come, but I'd like to wish all of you the best of luck in this noble undertaking. We'll be back on the same stations next week. Cheers.